Blog Talk Radio. Danny, I just figured out that if I switch to Metro PCS, I get two Samsung Galaxy phones free. Danny, I just figured out that if I switch to Metro PCS, I get two Samsung Galaxy phones free. Cool, Dad. And I could be a super dad with two free Samsung Galaxy phones and call myself Double Galaxy Man. Or you could give the second phone to your sidekick. Yeah, I guess I could do that. That's right. Two free Samsung Galaxy On5 smartphones are all yours when you switch to Metro PCS. Metro PCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Exclude numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we have another great show for you today, our last of 2016, and I'm excited to end it with John Falbo. We um, have a lot to talk about, and John always wows me with his stories, and his life in tennis has just been fascinating, and I love that I've had the opportunity to share him and his stories with all of you, and hope you're enjoying them, and hopefully we'll continue with our conversations into 2017, if John's willing, if his schedule permits. But um, for now, you'll have another hour of of his great storytelling, and I'm looking forward to bringing that to y'all. I want to just remind everyone, if you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, Google+, LinkedIn. We're all over social media and would love for you to follow us on the various outlets. Also, the UR Tennis Network has two other shows, tennis-related shows, one hosted by Coach Chuck Creasy, and uh, he always has some fascinating information to share with the world about his coaching philosophies and his thoughts on tennis, and then the other with Coach John Denise, who focuses on high school tennis, and John is the head of the Florida High School Tennis Coaches Association down in Florida. And so he always has some interesting guests on his show as well. So I urge you to check those out on the network. All right, without further ado, let me go ahead and bring John on the line and um, we'll get started. John, thank you so much for being with us. And um, we're pre-recording this, but since it'll be airing post-Christmas, I just want to say happy holidays to all of our listeners out there, and, of course, happy holidays to you too, John. Thank you, Lisa. Happy happy holidays to you and and everybody that ends up listening. And just so you know, so we're clear, my schedule will always permit. Uh, I'm fortunate to have control of my time, and there's no way that I would miss. As long as you want to do them, we'll do them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's a a great way to send off 2016 and move into 2017. So I appreciate your generosity with your time because I know you're a busy guy and I know you're in demand and um, I'm just very grateful for the time that you're willing to give us. I'm grateful to be on with you. And I really, I really enjoyed the interview that you did with uh, Lark Baxter O'Neill. I thought that was, if anybody can get a chance to tune into that, uh, she's had a wealth of experience, and the questions you asked and the conversations that you guys had, I think 
anybody that loves tennis and that has a child that's in tennis or that wants to learn more about the process of uh, developing a child in, in a bunch of different aspects could learn a ton from that from that interview. So I thought it was great. Thank you. Yeah, I I learned a lot from chatting with Lark as well. And, and I want to thank you for putting us in touch with each other. Um, she has had a, a career in tennis that expands beyond anybody that I've interviewed before. So it was really interesting to talk to somebody that had actually worked, you know, for manufacturers, but worked with juniors uh, through yeah. the manufacturers. And, you know, I learned a lot about that whole process. And, and so, yeah, that was pretty interesting. And, and definitely all of our shows from the dawn of time, <laughs> or the dawn of Parenting Aces anyway, can be found on the Parenting Aces YouTube channel. So if anybody wants to go back and listen to any of our podcasts, they're all housed on YouTube as well as on ParentingAces.com. And I, that's what I do now that you mention it. I, I go I go to the YouTube uh, interviews, and I've I've listened to quite a few of them. And there's just some really great information. I haven't hit on one interview that hasn't given some some real nuggets. So the kind of the kind of content that you're putting out, if somebody really wants to learn, they can they can really learn a ton by just going and sifting through the the various interviews because quite a few people have some really good things to say. I agree. I, it's been as much for me as for my audience. I mean, and, you know, not as much now that I don't have a, a child playing junior tennis anymore, but still just as as a fan of the sport and as somebody who plays myself, I, I learn from every single person that, that I get a chance to interview. So, um, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Oh, so, yeah. so I mean, what, when, are we, when I what are we chatting listening. about today, John? Well, you brought you brought to mind. I was listening to the interview with you and Lark, and I was thinking, I was imagining as she was talking about the sport Goofy, and she was talking about Gabriella Sabatini, and she was talking about uh, Monica Sellis and Andre and Michael Chang. I was I was seeing vividly in my mind. They used to when she was with Prince, they would have these rooms set up, okay, and and they would usually be offsite, but it was the Prince room, and everybody that played with Prince knew that was the Prince room. And she and the different representatives from Prince, she and her sister Tori, would, uh, along with a few other people, would be in the rooms. They'd have, as she said, they'd have a stringer in there. They'd have uh, supplies, be it T-shirts or you know, different wristbands, things. If you ever needed rackets, you could always get them. And so they had this whole, like, they treated you like a professional. And, you know, when she was talking about how they really wanted to go from more of a weekend player's market to uh, an influencer and a, a serious player's market to really affect the entire market, that's that's exactly what they were doing. And so I, I got these visions of of the Prince player rooms and being in there and if you could be a fly on the wall with who all would be circulating through the room now at the time you didn't know what the results were going to be you knew someone was going to break out but you didn't know that most everybody in the room was going to do something significant at that point and you, she she's very modest and you guys had a very, like, reasonable conversation. 
and and you know me, I'm going to take it a little more to the unreasonable, which is what she never said, and what and and she, I'm not speaking for her, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go into a few areas that she may or may not feel comfortable with because of you know she has to represent IMG, she has to represent herself, she has to represent uh, the students that she's working with. But I wanted to kind of give the audience an idea of what made her so good at what she did and what made that time in tennis such a such a special time. Um, and so as I saw these player rooms and I saw everybody sitting around and each of us talking and laughing, and they treated us, they talked to us like adults. They educated us about uh, sponsorship. They educated us about the rigors of the profession. They educated us about, you know, what it would be like three, four years from then and how we needed to conduct ourselves. And they were giving us their opinions about lots of different things. And they were talking to us like, essentially like adults. And some of us were 12, some of us were 14 and 16. But they were in that, you know how the NBA has like a player development program? Mm -hmm. They were really, they weren't just pushing rackets. They weren't just pushing their product. They were helping all of us develop as players and as people. So I thought back then, after I thought of the players' rooms, I thought back to we were at the Easter Bowl one year. And John, we, had, oh, we lost you for a second there. Sorry. You said you oh, thought back there. I thought back, and I thought back to the players' rooms, and I thought back to my mind went to uh, the Easter Bowl one year. And at this point, it was in Delray Beach in Florida. And there was it was a very big tournament. I, I believe I was in maybe first year 14 and under. And you guys had touched on smashing rackets. <laughs> okay. And, and if it was good for the racket company or bad for the racket company, and you, got, you guys kind of went into that, you and Lark. Well, I thought immediately mm-hmm. back to I had five or six Prince Graphites. And I had I had beaten Jared Palmer in the first round, I believe, because he was playing up. He was a couple years younger, and he was playing up. And so if you can imagine a first round, so he was playing up. I ended up beating him, and I, I was up. It was a very big match, the next match, and I was and I knew it. And so I was practicing before the match, and I was nervous. I was tense. Um, I was just just very clear on how important this next match was for my ranking, for my standing, et cetera. So we're practicing, and things are not going very well in practice. And there's palm trees nearby. And as things get worse and worse and worse, and I keep missing more and more and more, and I keep getting more and more and more nervous, finally I snap. And I took two of my rackets, and I chucked them up into the palm tree. Now, <laughs> this is now they have they have a prince room, mind you, that's overlooking the practice courts. So everybody's practicing peacefully. Everybody's getting ready for their matches, and all of a sudden there's this guy, and he just he just chucks two graphites up into the palm tree, and they didn't come down. They didn't come down. So there's two graphites lodged in the palm tree by the practice court. So I come over to the switchover, 
And the coach that's with us, he's like, uh, okay, you got four left. <laughs> you probably, if you're going to play today, you probably don't want to be doing any more than that. <laughs> so I, yeah, I thought about it logically. And I said, okay, I've just wasted two rackets. Then I thought, okay, what if they're up there and they saw that? You know, because I might get no more rackets ever at that point. Um, and then I thought, you know, okay, should I climb the palm tree and get them down? And I said, well, then I take a chance of hurting myself and I may not be able to play. So I went through a bunch of different scenarios. Ultimately, I decided to leave them up there, go play the match, and then go talk to her about it. Whether she knew it or not, go talk to her about it and just kind of take my medicine, if you will. So I went and played the match. I ended up winning the match because for me, whenever I would break a racket or whenever I would have an outburst or whenever I would release like that, I actually played better. So, and then not a lot of people do that, but for me, it was a, a release of emotion. And so then I could get back to business and I wasn't suppressing what was going on. So I've never had a problem with somebody breaking a racket or somebody throwing a racket or, you know, somebody, and that's probably against like what can be said is politically correct, but I know how pressure packed stuff gets. And sometimes you just got to let it rip. And so that's what you see when you see guys just smashing frames. They've just had enough and they need to let it out. And I'm not saying it's the right way to do it, but the simple fact is they're not going they're not going postal on anybody. They're not going out and shooting anybody. They're not they're taking a tennis racket and yes, it might not look good for the tennis company and it might not look good for the player at the time, but they're dealing with it the best they can at the time. And everybody makes mistakes. So I played the match, I won it, and then I went up to the prince room. And I was, like, thinking in my head, like, okay, what do you say? You say, you know, your equipment is lodged <laughs> in a palm tree at this point. <laughs> you know, what, what yeah. kind of conversation is that? I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going up, and I'm, I'm nervous. I'm, and so she and Tori are in the room, and I go in, and there's several guys there, uh, several of the top guys in the country. And uh, when I walk in, a couple of the players are looking at me because they're the same players that were practicing beside of me. And they start smiling at me. And they're like, what the hell is going to happen here? Like, how is he going to explain this? And I just, I looked at her and I said, um, I, need to, I need to tell you something. And you're probably not going to be pleased, but it's the truth. And the best I can do is tell you the truth. And then we can go from there. Now, this is why Lark was so good at what she did. And she'd never say this. But her contributions to Sabatini and Celis and Andre and Michael, she made contributions to so many people that made them better people as well as better players. She didn't even let me get into it. Now, maybe she was told beforehand, like maybe there was some talk before I got in, like, hey, did you see what Falvo did? He just tossed two graphites. Because at that time, they were like a couple hundred dollars a piece. Sure. Which was a lot back back then two hundred dollars. They they ended up coming out with a boron that was like five hundred dollars. But at that time, the graphite was one of the most expensive rackets on the market. So maybe there was a conversation before I got in the room with some of the players. Like, can you believe you just chucked two of those into the palm tree and they they didn't come down? 
So maybe she knew, maybe she didn't. I, I don't know to this day. But when I walked in, she, she got me something to drink. She asked me if I needed any product. I sat down. She and Tori and I just talked like pretty much nothing had ever happened. And they asked me how I was doing. They asked me how I did in my match. They treated me like a human being. And towards the end of the conversation, she made the comment. She was like, John, you know, all kinds of stuff happens in life, and we all make mistakes every day. And the best thing you can do is just always learn. You be honest, you tell the truth, and you learn. And then if anybody holds that against you, well, you probably don't want to be around them anyway. She never, never cornered me, never, even if she knew, she never cornered me, she never busted on me, she never embarrassed me in front of all the people. And I walked out of there and I was thinking, you know, that's that's really a first-class lady right there. Because whether she knew or not, she was very empathetic to the fact that I knew I had done something that was probably wrong in terms of getting free equipment and abusing it like that. But she didn't hold me to the cross for it, you know. She explained to Mm me a lesson. She gave me a lesson. And she taught me. She educated me. And and that and she did that kind of thing a lot. And so I wanted to share that after listening to the to the interview because she would never say that about herself. And y'all didn't have really enough time to go into what made her so integral in the development during those ten or fifteen years of the whole American generation. But she didn't just do that with me. She did that with she did that with multiple people. And that contributed, I think, to everybody's character and everybody's strength, you know? That's a great story. And, I mean, what's so interesting is I'm listening to you tell the story is she wasn't that much older than you at that point, right? I mean, she was pretty young when she was working with Prince. Yeah, I think she was. I think she and Tori were maybe late, maybe mid to late 20s. She was, yeah, because she was out of college. And by that I was 12. So, yeah, they must have been 26, 28 or so. Um, wow. But they were... That's they impressive. Were, they, yeah, and they, they really had the best... In, of course, they wanted people using prints, and of course, they wanted to promote the brand and do their job and, and, and advance with their careers, but they took it another level. They, they really did give a damn about... They got attached to the people that they worked with. And and that's, to me, that, yeah, you risk getting hurt when you get attached, but to me, that's the mark of strength and character. Because if I can get attached to you, yes, you may hurt me, and I may suffer or be disappointed, but if I'm not afraid of that pain, then the joy that we have in that attachment supersedes anything we could have if we just had some sort of sterile arrangement, you know? Well, so, I mean, let's expand on this a little bit because now you've piqued my interest in terms of the relationships that the young players have with the manufacturer's reps. And, you know, I've had the opportunity just through Parenting Aces and through my son to meet manufacturer's reps. And the ones that I've met have been equally, you know, stand up people as how you're describing Lark and 
you know, I've been very impressed with watching them interact with the players and, and all of that. So from the player's perspective, maybe you can expand a little bit on what those relationships looked like, you know, not just at the big tournaments, but maybe, you know, during the rest of the year when you're in training or, or whatever, I mean, what type of interaction did you have with, with Lark or, or any of the other reps that, that you were working with? Yeah, and, and and I tell you, I think of my dad when you say that because my dad would be in touch with Prince probably once a week. And, and whenever we would see Lark or Tori and, and there were a few other fellows that worked with him, um, my dad would send them gifts at Christmas. He would he would take them out to eat at tournaments. He he and and this wasn't a smooth job. He he was a very hardcore direct man. And he would say, "Look, you guys, I really appreciate what you're doing for my son because he feels like he feels a part of something that's special, and that's that means a lot to me because what it's going to do for him for the future, just in terms of his mentality, you know." So he really appreciated the way they treated me, and he would be in touch. He would call probably once a week just to talk. He, there would be thirty-minute conversation about no product sent. No, you know, at the end, they would always say, hey, do you need something? Do you need anything? And he'd be like, no, I just want to thank you guys. And because you're, every time we see you, you're pleasant, you're kind, you're good to us. And, uh, and it was just kind of the way you did things. There was a, there was a lady with Wilson named Linda, and I don't remember her last name, but there were so many guys. I mean, it was basically Wilson and Prince at that point competing with one another. And there were a number of guys that were in the top in the country that used Wilson just because it was Linda. Because she would call them once a week or once every couple of weeks. She would know their families. She would know birthdays. She would know children. She would know grandchildren. And this is the type of thing that it doesn't matter to me. Like loyalty in our family is the number one component. And you can do a lot of things wrong. You can make a lot of mistakes. But if you're loyal and you're truthful, that supersedes everything. And they really had a sense because they, they came from a generation back before. So they had a sense of, hey, you know what? If this person is going to do right by me, I want to do right by them. As opposed to, well, let's just see what I can get and move on let's just take what I can take and then use everybody and move on. So, yeah, they wanted to sell products. They wanted everybody promoting the brand. But it went a lot deeper. You know, a lot of today I laugh because a lot of banks and insurance companies and and other, you know, uh, corporate-type uh, institutional companies will say, well, we want a relationship. And I'm thinking, okay, if I give you my money and I become an unsecured creditor, that means you've got jurisdiction over my money at that point. How is that a relationship? That sounds like something totally different to me. That doesn't sound like you're really going to be considerate of me at that point, seeing as how you've got control of my money. Now, right. a relationship to me is when you can sit down and you can talk to somebody, when they know your family. You know, when they know your birthday or your children's birthday. 
And to act like family and not be family, as I've grown up, is one of the biggest insults you could ever place. So to say you want a relationship with somebody when really all you want to do is take their money, that's insulting, that's disrespectful to me. But what they did and the way they did it, that whole era of people, and and it sounds like some of the people you've met, um, they really they really gave a damn about the player. And yes, they were honest. We want you to use our product. We want you to be repping our product the whole way through. But at the same time, we're going to be sensitive to your schedule. We're going to be sensitive to your fatigue level. We're going to be sensitive to all the pressures you might go through. We're going to be sensitive to the fact that you're growing up as you're trying to do all of this. And we're going to we're going to have some common sense and some empathy about this. It's real development. You hit on it with her in the interview. It's it's real development. It's not, you know, kind of pseudo-development. It's not window-dressing development. It's actually getting in there and really contributing to people's lives. So that's that's I, what I, I think. I found that... that... Sorry, I was going to say, I found it so interesting, and I said this in, in the podcast with Lark, you know, that they use that term, player development, that she considered herself in player development as a manufacturer's rep, and I had never, I, I had never heard that term in relation to, you know, a manufacturer. Um, it never occurred to me. But now listening to you and and the type of interaction that you had, and thinking now about my interaction with with some of the current manufacturers reps out there, it makes total sense. It's not just about developing the player as a player, but but again, developing the person, and you know that's one of the things that that good coaches do um, is they develop the whole person, not just the player. But uh, again, it just it never occurred to me that that a a manufacturer would be in that role as well. So yeah, I learned because something new. You're correct. You're right on the money, Lisa, because, like, for instance, if you sat down with Pete privately, privately, not to write a book, not to do an interview, just privately, just really personal stuff that he won't tell hardly anybody, and you said, what what, what do you think are the key ideas that you've been able to capitalize on that allowed you to be so great? Two of them, there's no doubt, there's absolutely no question that two of them would be the ability to focus on a set of goals for a long period of time, over 15, 20, 25 years, and continue on a day-to-day process towards those goals without giving up, without faltering, without, you know, um, quitting, basically. So the ability to focus on a set of goals for a long period of time, that would be one of them. Another one, and it's every bit as important, would be he would tell you, I don't panic. I do not panic. And what he means by that is he could be down a set. He could be down a set and a break. He could be down two sets. Biggest match you you want to name. He's not going to panic. Why? He knows himself. He knows his game. 
And within those two that intertwine those two together are his character. And character is not about how good of a player you are. It's like, let's not put the cart before the horse. And that's what I was telling you last time we, we talked and we discussed, you know, you asked me, why haven't there been great players? And I said it gently then with the kind of day you and I both had today. I'm going to say it a little more bluntly today. People around the players over the last 15 years has not been as high. That's as clear and as blunt as I can say it. The character has not been as strong. And not only of the parents, but of the coaches and also of the people around on the team, like Lark, like in the player development. There's not as much caring. There's not as much strength. And all of that goes into a guy like Pete. It it goes into every player. Federer hasn't been on an island. He's got a number of people that, from the time he was little, that have had their, their donation, their contribution to his character. So when you get in these really tough moments and you get in these really these situations where a lot of people doubt and a lot of people fold and a lot of people quit, be it in one match or like at, in the course of a year, certainly in the course of a career, you don't fold and you don't panic because your character, the fiber, the fabric of your character is so strong based on all these people, all these contributions, all these experiences that you simply don't fold and you keep going. And you might not know that you'll win, but you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, and sooner or later good things happen because you simply don't quit and you don't let doubt and fear overcome you. So let me ask you this, John, because you've been around the game, you know, through – through a couple generations now. And so when did this change in terms of the character of the people around the players? Um, Was it a sudden thing? Was it a gradual thing? Is it something you can pinpoint? I think it, I think it's happened over time, you know, and I think, I think that's why you'll see with the younger crop that you were talking about, you're going to see some fairly old school people in the background that are because millennials are they're very good in one way. They have a very deep sense of rhythm and flow and spontaneity. They're very, very good in that way. They're very bad in terms of planning and in terms of understanding what I call like resource based acknowledgement, which is it's like when when. And not just money, but energy, time, uh, these kinds of variables. They don't know how to plug those into a formula and then extrapolate that over time and develop a game plan because everything for them has been instant from food to social media to everything. So they have no real sense, no real training in how to, how to give a game plan. They don't know how to play chess, per se, playing checkers. And they're very good in checkers. They can jump once and get the king with fluidity. And that's a gift. So that's not diminishing or minimizing that. Very good spontaneity, very good rhythm, very good intuition. But without a game plan, you're you're pretty screwed. So 
I think it's changed over time with the development of technology, with the development of just the social fabric and the strengths and weaknesses in that over the last 15, 20 years. But I think that's why you'll see with the guys that will end up making it and winning some grand slams and this younger crop that's coming up, because I believe they will win some grand slams. You never know how many. They'll have some really old-school people in the background that have them anchored and that are very tough, their character is strong, and that's who the people will rely on very quietly, not publicly, very quietly. But you wouldn't believe, when I, when I would go with uh, Pancho Segura out in California, Jimmy Connors was number one in the world, and he was coaching Jimmy. We'd be out there working. We'd get interrupted in one hour. We'd get interrupted probably eight or ten times because within five minutes, Borg would come to the gate just to say hello. And then another ten minutes would pass, and Aaron Crickstein would come to the, come out because he, he was working with Poncho at that point, and Poncho felt like he was going to be in the top ten in the world soon, which he was. Uh, and then, you know, ten minutes later, Bobby Riggs would come over. He just won $5,000 on a bet playing somebody at the club with, like, one one leg off the ground and an umbrella in his hand. And so, <laughs> you know, you, you, had, you had this sense of Poncho's character and his strength and what he had been through. He started dirt poor. Playing tennis to him was a gift. He never, ever, ever took it for granted partly why Jimmy played every single point so hard because every day Poncho would be like, man, you, you got a gift to be out here, you know, because he knew, he knew true poverty. And so you had this kind of strength of character behind these guys. And then as, as the years would go by, every single player, Monica Sellis's dad was a rock. That guy was a rock. He was a cartoonist. He was incredibly visual, which she was too. That's how he taught her her strokes. She knew in her mind what she was going to do before she ever did it. And he was a rock in terms of if, if someone ever wronged her or if someone ever slighted her, she knew, she knew where home base was at all times. There was no question. If somebody criticized her or tried to bring her down or whatever, he was a rock, and he was like, hey, none of that, none of that. And her, her character then also became a function of his character. So it, it kind of comes back to those strong personalities we were talking about. And as, as an addition to that, I would say this, and no one will say this, and I understand why our group of guys won't say it, because the way it would be interpreted in the mainstream media, it would be, regenerated and treated as disrespectful to this current group like Federer and Djokovic and Nadal. And I'm not going to include Murray because he's like, he's like four times the amount of slams behind. So anybody that includes him in that group is just flat out wrong because he's not even close. Yes, he's number one in the world, but until he gets to eight or ten slams, he's not even close to those guys. No, and, and the players will not say this, and I understand why, because they don't ever want the guys on top now to feel disrespected, and that's what could happen. But if we're sitting, in a, again, in a private conversation, 
where nothing can be manipulated and truth can come out. These guys have won these slams. They're from Europe. Okay? They've won these slams in a vacuum without American players. Players. Now, Roddick was in there. Yes, he won a U.S. Open. But he's not, he's not the core of our guys, right? Blake was in there. He was a tremendous player. Still not, not, not on that level. So all of these slams, what no one will say was all of these slams have been won, or certainly the majority of them, without really great Americans in the mix. And that, that needs to be included in the conversation because if you're going to tell me that Federer goes X amount of consecutive semifinals at Grand Slams, if you're going to tell me that great Americans sit by and let that happen, I say no way. No way. In, in the absence of great Americans and the mindset that goes behind being an American player and the resourcefulness and the resilience that you have to have, in the absence of that, yes, I can see the dominance. I can see Nadal having as many slams as Pete and having nine French Opens. And he might have had nine without, even with Americans, he might have had nine. But the chances of him having 14 are drastically reduced if you throw some all-time great Americans in there. Simply for the mental aspect, they're not going to stand for it. They're going to find a way to break those streaks. They're going to find a way to win some on their own. And that's that. I'm not saying their records are not great. I'm not saying they're not great players. I'm not saying that that they, they're not to be commended. But you cannot say all of that without saying this has happened in a 10 to 15-year vacuum where there have literally been no Americans that you will classify in history as really great ones that are winning five-plus grand slams apiece, you know, four or five-plus grand slams apiece. And when you start throwing a Courier in there and you start throwing a Chang in there and you start throwing a Andre in there and Pete in there, even, even, even though they didn't win slams, you start throwing Todd Martin and Malavia in there. And then you start throwing Alex O'Brien and these different guys in there. And you're going to tell me that these guys are going to have the same kind of winning streaks that they've had? It doesn't matter to me that none of the other guys feel like they can say it. It needs to be said because there's no way they have these kind of winning streaks. No way. Because there's a ton of guys in Europe that are making a great living, plenty satisfied with getting to the round of 16 or the quarters. They're making their money. They're traveling around Europe. They have a wonderful lifestyle. And that's cool. That's excellent, you know. But in terms of really getting down and grinding in those really tough moments and grinding out some matches in the quarters or semis against guys, it's not about the money at that point. It's about just am I, am I going to be tougher than this guy? Am I going to outlast this guy? You know, am so I going to get So where were our Americans? Where were the challengers from our country? Well, they they were non-existent. That's what I'm saying, and I think I think that needs to why? be. Well, we've we've hit. I I believe we've hit on it, because because the the character, the fiber within the player, was simply not as strong. 
And so you can talk about equipment changes. You can talk about surface changes. You can talk about all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, the character wasn't deep enough and strong enough to find ways to get it done. Plenty of money has been made. Plenty of titles have been won, you know, like second and third tier titles. But it's a whole it's it's a whole different idea mentally. You know, it's like a boxer. When you when you fight most everybody else, it's one thing. When you fight Floyd Mayweather, it's a totally different idea. You gotta dig to a point that you wouldn't normally have to dig. And a lot of guys simply don't want to dig mentally like that. They're simply too scared or they simply don't have the strength to dig like that. They're afraid of what it might do to them mentally. They're afraid of what people might think of them. They're afraid they're not strong enough. And that's, I'm talking to you real. I'm not talking like, you know, CNN hype propaganda, ESPN type stuff. I'm talking very privately and saying, look, when you get into a guy's psyche and you really see what he's scared of and why he's not playing every single ball, you know, it's why Michael Jordan would literally punch guys in the face at practice. Because he was like, look, you you got to play every possession. I don't care if it's practice or a game. You play every ball, you play every possession. And if you're not going to do that, I'm going to inflict some pain on you until you decide to do that. Same thing with Mayweather. When you get in there, you know, you're constantly, you're having punches thrown. You're dodging punches. You're trying to hit. It's a whole different level of intensity and hunger. And if well, you want to say that... Let me ask you... Go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, if you well, want to say that they've been too soft, that's a general way to say it, but you have to drill deeper in my view. And it comes down to the character with which they were not only raised, but with which they were coached and with which they were surrounded. And that comes back to Lark and what an important, it's why I felt like you guys would have not only one good interview, but in the future, hopefully you'll have more. And there's, she's had a rich, rich contribution to the game because she's helped develop characters. So what I was going to ask you then is, you're a parent, you have a son who is a, a very high-level chess player, so obviously has to have that belief in his ability, that strength to not give up when, you know, he thinks he might be beat, um, or that belief to know that he can win every game he sits down to play. How do you reconcile being a loving, caring, giving parent in 2016 terms with instilling that type of strength of character in your child and doing figuratively the things that you're describing Michael Jordan doing in the practice court with with your kid, you know, as a parent, how do you how do you do those things to instill that type of strength in a child? Well, I, I think it's a great question, and I would start that by saying, when you say 2016, I think the bar is so low at certain times. 
You know, yeah. like if my child can spell cat, he's in the honors program. Like I, I drive around and I homeschool my child, but I, I, I drive around and I see these stickers. And if, I hope I'm not offending you too, but I see these stickers, and I'm and they're like my child is an honor student at so and so junior high, and my child is an honor student. At, like, okay, first of all, if they can get through a basic curriculum at this point, if they can tie their shoes chew gum, and spell cat, then we're like, okay, well, we're ahead of 90% of the people. Then you get into who all's manipulating grade point averages, who all's, they've already cut out one-third of the SAT. You probably know that. They've cut out like the, I mean, so, so, so we're cutting out spelling. I receive texts sometimes look like Sanskrit, because they're like, it's some sort of really primitive, it's not even like regular hieroglyphics. You know, it, the spelling is so bad that it's, it, you can barely make out what the person's trying to say. And you know if they're, if they're writing that way, that they're thinking that way. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess my point being is the bar is so low at this point that I don't even look at 2016 uh, you know, like uh, reference. One of the uh, f- Facebook gets cranky sometimes with, you know, they get overwhelmed. Their servers get overwhelmed. So this post is not up yet. But one of the one of the recent posts I'm going to put up is like you you get you get this idea as as you're growing up this day and age that you can BS people and get something for nothing. It's part of the fabric. Like if I pander to you enough and I kiss up to you enough, then it really doesn't matter if I produce results. All that matters is that I'm nice and that you like me, and then you'll give me what I want. And that is the most absurd idea, and it leads to entitlement, and it leads to expecting a good job and expecting to be wealthy and expecting everything to be given to you, expecting that, well, when I, because you're lucky enough to be born in this country, because you're lucky enough to be born healthy, when two-thirds of the world is not, they can barely survive, they barely have enough to eat, they barely have shelter, and you come in thinking, well, this is the way it should be. It's the most ignorant, arrogant, asinine way of looking at things that I've ever seen. So the 2016 mode that you spoke of, I personally, I throw that out the window, and I, I'm saying, okay, if the bar is that low, what are we really working with here? And the conversation that Paul and I have is, look, if I'm pushing you, if I'm demanding excellence of you and you to do your best, I'm strengthening you. If I give you what you want, just because it's easier for me, I'm weakening you. Plain and simple. So I'm going to push you. I'm going to push you. I love you, but I expect you to do your best every day, and I'm going to push you because that's how you get stronger. Because if I'm to accept an excuse or a manipulation or a pander or a placation, then I'm really, I'm really weakening you. 
And I'm not able to look myself in the mirror like that. So at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the communication with the parent and the child and some real direct honesty. And I think a lot of kids grow up and they say, well, you know, if I just massage this situation here and if I, you know, it's like everybody getting a trophy. You want to know how many medals I've tossed back to the tournament director in a chess tournament? Like, especially when Paul was first starting out, he'd get like 16th place and they'd hand him a medal and, and want to take a picture. And I'd take the medal and I'd just toss it back to the guy. I'd be like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> he came in 16th place. <laughs> if I came in 16th place in a tennis tournament, I'd get maybe like a Wendy burger when I went home on the way home. Like I'd get fed. That's what I'd get. And then I'd have to think about it and I'd have to think about how crappy I did. I'd have to think about if I really wanted to get better. I'd have to think about, hey, is this really something for me? And is, do I want to put the work in? You know, because I lost. And that's, that's really, you hit on something here. People are afraid of loss more today than they've ever been. And you don't get anything good without loss. So if you can't deal with loss, be it death, you know, of people around you, or mistakes, or losing, if you don't know how to deal with loss, you're really a fragile individual. And you're not the type of individual that's going to be winning Grand Slams for sure. And this idea of giving everyone a medal and making everyone feel all nice and cuddly when they lose and having friendship brackets where everybody plays and smiles and, and giving trophies for all of this, it, it's, it's really nonsensical to me because it never deals head on with the fact that, hey, you got your ass kicked. You just your butt beat. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to dig down and mentally find if you really want to do this? Are you going to go physically work at it? Are you going to deal with your competition and developing a competitive edge in a way that no one else has? Because without loss, none of this happens. Without loss, there's not the hunger. It doesn't test you. This, you know, these, yeah. these ideas, you have to be able to deal with loss. And loss is painful and loss is disappointing. But loss is good in that if you're, if you're strong enough and if you're re resolute enough, resolved enough, you build your character and then you get better and you improve through work, not through BSing somebody, oh, hey, you look nice today. Hey, that's a nice tie. Hey, maybe I could get a better grade. It's BS, because I can tell you money doesn't work that way on the highest level. Tennis doesn't work that way on the highest level. Business doesn't work that way on the highest level. Any great friendship I've ever had doesn't work that way on the highest level. Stakes made, there's things to communicate about, there's things to work through, and ultimately there's loss, and then there's recovery, there's preparation, and ultimately there's development and improvement. But, yeah, you knowing one another the way we do at this point, you would have had a good laugh. I'd take They'd give me the medal to give to him. I'd give it to him. He'd give it back to me, and I'd toss it back to them. Mm -hmm. And why? 
because he came in 16th. That you don't you don't get and, a medal for them. <laughs> but but let's let's clarify too, John, because you know I can I can already hear kind of the buzz. Gosh, this guy's a real jerk. You know, I mean, he's got 16th. That's not so bad. You know, so let's clarify. It's not that you're any less proud of him for. If he's worked hard and 16th was the best he was able to do on that day, am I am I saying that right? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but well, there's a difference me, in there's a difference in shaming your child for losing and helping them take a loss and turn it into a desire to work harder to do better next time. And and you're absolutely correct, but the fact that you even have to explain this shows the fragility of the mentality that we deal with today. Because yeah. you're you're correct. You're correct. You're right on the money. I dispute nothing you just said. But with with someone who's not fragile, you don't have to say that because you know what? He knows I love him because of the time I spend with him every day. He knows I love him because of the care that I give him every day. Our relationship is not fragile. So he he knows that I'm out for his best interest. He knows that I recognize when he does his best and when he doesn't do his best. He knows that I know him like the back of my hand because I've spent the time and I've provided the care for him. So we don't have a fragile relationship. So that that's, that base is there to the point where we can get on to the really good stuff, which is how do we get as good as we can possibly get? How do you get as accomplished and achieve as much excellence as you can? And you hit, the fact that you even have to preface what I said, what you said, which is right on the money, which is the base that's been laid, shows you the fragility of what's going on, and, and, and quite frankly, why there's not more excellence, why there's not more but, achievement. But that's a big part of the culture of junior tennis, and yeah. I don't have experience in other junior sports, but from talking to parents involved in other sports, it's the mm-hmm. basis, you know, of those, of many, many junior sports right now, and... So I think, you know, again, it's this is why these conversations are so good. I think it's important for for parents especially and coaches as well to understand that, you know, you don't have to you don't have to make a kid feel good when they lose. That's not right. a necessary thing. Kids Aren't suppo- you're not supposed to feel good when you lose. It's supposed to feel and, bad. Yeah, and I would, I, would, I would add to what you just said, which I totally agree with. I think it's actually counterproductive and bad for the child because I think it's lying to them. Because deep down, if they did their best and you know they did their best, then both of you are going to feel good about that fact. Like that's, that's just a fact. That's a maxim, if you will. When you do your best, you feel good. You still there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. 
sorry, I heard a couple of beeps. So when you when you do your best, you internally, your psyche, your whole internal mechanism feels good. So everybody's going to know if you did your best. But to actually then have to placate somebody because the relationship or one of the people, sometimes it's not even the child that's fragile. It's the parent or the coach that's so fragile that then they feel like they have to placate the child so that nobody gets too honest. And so I agree with you that when you lose and you feel bad, it's not that you feel bad about yourself doesn't change. That's unchangeable. But you feel bad about your performance and your behavior. Now, the performance and the behavior are changeable. The spirit and the self-worth are time and memorial. Those don't change. And if you have the discipline and you have the core relationship with somebody to know that those things don't change and that the love is always going to be there, well, then when we perform bad, we have to admit it. We have to admit that the performance might have sucked. That doesn't mean you suck as an individual, but the performance might have sucked. So how can we get better? And that is a healthy thing. If we're going to lie about that, to me, that's destructive to the child and to whoever's doing it with the child, whoever's participating in it. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I think we all have a lot of work to do. Um, I think society has a lot of work to do, and and we can dig deeper into this next time because we're coming to the end of our hour. But um, I I would love to tell you about conversations I've had with with a friend of mine who works in HR and uh, what corporations are doing these days to accommodate and attract millennials is very disturbing and it fits right into exactly this conversation of, you know, character building and, and strength and, and resiliency. And uh, I'm not sure we're, we're done yet with, with messing things up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bait and switch and, and it goes, it goes right back to what you and I discussed a couple podcasts ago, which is, the people that are going to do well are going to be the people with sound-minded, common-sense, loving, empathetic, solid people behind them with strength of character. And all this other manipulative stuff like you just mentioned and looking to rob people of their labor and looking to bait and switch them and manipulate them, they're not going to get good results that way because fundamentally it's just off. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, with that, I'm going to bring us to the end of the show because we are there time-wise. And thank you, John, again for for being with us and ending 2016 with such a thoughtful and uh, thought-provoking conversation. And and I really appreciate you and, and all you're giving to the Parenting Aces audience. So thank you. And to my listeners, thank you all for tuning in. I hope you have had a happy holiday season, happy new year to everyone, and uh, we'll see you in 2017. Have a great rest of 2016, and John, thanks again. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Danny, I just figured out that if I switch to Metro PCS, I get two Samsung Galaxy phones free. Cool, Dad. And I could be a super dad with two free Samsung Galaxy phones. and call.